Father, we would ask you to intercede in the health of our brother Vince. He is loved by those in this church, and we pray that your love would extend to him in a real and tangible way that you would remove any effects of the small stroke that he had and help him also, Lord, with his mobility, that you would um, just give him strength in his limbs and just be restored completely. We know that you are the God who heals. And we had asked this for our brother Vince and just encourage him where he is and, and give him time with you. Father, also for the message today, I pray that your hand of anointing, your blessing would be upon it, that you would help us to keep in view what lies ahead for us, as well as looking at the past and what transpired in the past so we might learn from those lessons. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this week I was listening to Sean McDowell. Sean McDowell is the son of Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell is the author of Evidence That Demands a Verdict and A Ready Defense, which is compiled by Bill Wilson, both just excellent books. I would recommend those at any time. Evidence that demands a verdict, it gets into the minutia of why you can trust the New Testament documents. And it gives you more than you would ever want to know, but it is a good resource uh, for apologetics. And Sean McDowell, he is a professor up at Biola University, and he has this forum on YouTube where he brings in guests and he talks with them. I I wish I could emulate uh, to perfection the way that he handles his discussions on there. He's not pejorative. He's not in your face. He, He just simply has a conversation with the individuals. And if these individuals are in error, he doesn't attack them. He just lets them stand on their own words and what they have to say. And when I was watching a couple of uh, videos on that, one was Brandon Robertson, and he had gone through Moody Bible Institute or seminary. I don't know which one it was. And and he was in there, and that's a conservative place theologically. But when he came out, he became a progressive Christian. He doesn't hold to the deity of Jesus Christ, uh, not necessarily the... Uh, plenary inspirational view of the scriptures that it's God breathed that type of thing and he was talking back and forth with Sean McDowell and that was an interesting conversation because that's that's where the church is going is kind of in that direction the progressive direction and there was even a video that I saw the other day and this is happening to Christians as well as they are uh, having their children indoctrinated in the secular schools for instance I saw a video this last week of a woman, she's in her car, and she turned on the camera on her phone, and there were two small children in the back. You couldn't see the children, you could see her. And the children were talking back and forth, and the little boy, it sounds like a little boy and a little girl, the little boy turns to the little girl and says, guess what? And the girl says, well, what? He says, Jesus is non-binary. They're teaching this in the schools And this was out of Ireland, but it is here in San Diego. It's all throughout California. It's across the country. And kids being taught stuff like that, this is the age in which they form their opinions. You know, he he sounded like he's probably a seven or eight-year-old. And you go to about 13 and into 16, and you start just parroting what you were taught especially by those who are in the the schools, the teachers that are there. And some of the teachers are just gleeful that they're able to deceive the parents and, and allow the children to change their genders and not talk to the parents about it. And there are laws being passed to try to 
keep that from happening if a child changes his gender within three days that parents have to be notified by the school if that's the case and there's a lot of resistance to that and so this idea of Jesus not being the Jesus of scripture but maybe the Jesus of history is a little bit different and that is what um, this Brandon Robertson talked about with Sean McDowell and I, you know I just I was taken aback by that and then he had another individual on by the name of Colby Martin he is a pastor here in San Diego, and he is embracing the LGBTQ uh, plus um, agenda, which is out there. And he embraces the same-sex marriages. And I was listening to him, and of course, he stood on his reasoning, but he really didn't stand on Scripture. And Sean was great about going back and forth with him. And the reason I'm saying all this is because truth matters. What we believe determines how we act and where we end up. And if that truth is diluted, if it's put down, if it's, uh, you know, mixed with something of the world, it's going to do a lot of damage. This last week in the youth group, we just finished Ecclesiastes. We went through that vanity of vanities, all is vanities. And, and the kids in there, some of them are really growing. They're really catching on to what the Bible has to say. And I asked them this question. I said, I want you to define for me what truth is. And they really couldn't nail it down. Went through several of the kids that were there. And truth is simply that which describes reality. For instance, if I wanted to say, I am a black lesbian. Yeah, you would say, that's not real. But in today's society, we have this postmodern view. And what that means is there is no truth, no absolute truth. And whatever you want to believe, it's okay for you as long as it doesn't damage anybody else. And that's the the truth that is out there now, the non-truth. There is no absolute truth. And so I wanted to make sure they had that down. And I, I gave them a list of about 50 or 60 theological terms. And we're going through them one at a time. Because they have the Bible down. They understand what the gospel is. They, they got the basics of the Christian faith. They know that. But I just want to give them a little bit more. Not that they're going to be theologians by the time we get done. But they're going to have a grasp of what solid biblical doctrine and truth is. And that's why we gather together. So that we can go through that type of thing and really expand and explain what truth is that's why we meet together so you guys will be solid in your christian faith you'll know what's lying ahead you'll know why we even gather together you'll know why jesus christ is the savior of the world and why he came here and became a man and he will be a man forever all of those things are critical for us and we want to make sure we're spreading that to everyone else now with that We are currently in Acts chapter 13, and I'm going to spend just a little bit of time. We left off in verse 27, but I'm going to spend a little bit of time on that text, and then I'm going to veer off just a little bit. I I think this is pertinent for us in the days in which we live, but we saw that Saul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey, and we gave you the picture uh, last week of where they went, how they went down to the island of Cyprus, and then they went up into the area of Turkey and going all the way up to Antioch, Pisidia, and when they did that, they arrived and saw Sergius Paulus, and Sergius Paulus was like a governor, and he had this attendant which was there, a person who would give him counsel, Eliamus the sorcerer, 
And of course, Eliamis, the sorcerer, tried to confound the understanding of Sergius Paulus and kept him from, wanted to keep him from being saved. And Paul turned to him and said, you are a child, verse 10, of the devil and the enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you and you are going to be blind for a time. You will be unable to see the light of the sun. And so this curse was put upon him. And then it just goes on to describe where else they went on this missionary journey. And they ended up in a synagogue where the rulers asked them to speak. And when they did, Saul gives uh, them a brief history lesson about the Israelites. And he starts with Egypt and the wilderness and how they ended up overthrowing seven nations when they went into the land of Canaan after being slaves for 450 years and judges came after that then the kings and king david who was promised that a messiah would come from his lineage excuse me <coughs> and john the baptist was his forerunner paving the way for the messiah the coming of the messiah and then we end up in verse 27 <clears throat> verse 27 the people of jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize jesus <clears throat> yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. So they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now witnesses to our people. So the Messiah came, the Jews rejected him. Paul and Barnabas are going up into the area of Turkey and delivering the gospel, not only to the Jews in the synagogue, but also to the God fears or the Gentiles who follow the way of the Lord, the Pentateuch of the Old Testament and the Old Testament scriptures. So the Messiah came and delivered the message of salvation. Now this message of salvation is codified in the book of Romans. We should all understand and maybe have it tucked in our minds what this is. Now, first, there's no one righteous. That's Romans chapter 3, verse 10. None of us has done good at any time. We are all fallen. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then there is Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his love for us, that then while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. So first, we're sinners, and Christ died for the sinners. Well, how did we become sinners? Well, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, therefore death came to all men because all sin. So from Adam, this is the original sin, that Adam and Eve, they ate of the fruit, and because of that, their nature was changed, or their spiritual nature, the one that was given to God, was changed. It was killed. They died at that time. So we know that we were sinners, Christ died for the sinners. How we became sinners was because of Adam and Eve. Now, since we are all sinners, what's our, uh, what is our punishment for that? Because we're sinners in the hands of God who is righteous and just. Well, it is eternal separation from God because the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. So we see how this progression goes through. Then, well, how do I remedy this? Remember, God is a God of mercy, and so he provides a way, absolutely merciful, provides a way for us not to be judged by our sins. How do we do that? 
You've heard it so many times. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That Jesus from the dead. And you'll be saved. And so he gives that formula there. And then Romans 10, 13 says. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not the elect who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so those who are saved are the elect but there's some theological differences out there where people say no some people are born for election and salvation and some people are born to die and go to hell and i reject that i just want to let you know everybody has the opportunity to be saved that's the message of the gospel that paul expanded into what our understanding is now but jesus came and said the kingdom of god is among you right now the kingdom of god is with you it's within you all of those things then paul said this is how the kingdom of god becomes real to us so that's why the messiah came he came so that we might have fulfillment in god and be saved and live with him forever But the Jews, digressing a little bit, rejected Jesus as the Messiah and condemned him to death. And this fulfilled the writings of the prophets. Now, what writings specifically did this fulfill? This was fulfilling of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's verse 1 in Psalm 22. Of course, Jesus repeated that on the cross, and it describes the crucifixion. Also, Isaiah chapter 32 excuse me 53 verse 12 it says he bore our sins for many and made intercession for the transgressors the whole chapter isaiah 53 talks about jesus being the sacrifice for our sins and how he redeemed us and then also there's daniel chapter 9 verses 25 and 26 that the messiah would present himself And would be cut off or he would be killed. It's given in the scriptures. So the Jews rejected him. But if they had the scriptures and they knew Isaiah 53, they knew Psalm 22, they knew Daniel chapter 9 verse 25. And there's a multitude of other scriptures too that were prophesied that Jesus would be the Messiah. Yet they missed it or they rejected it. Why did they reject it? They had the evidence right in front of them and they knew what the scriptures had to say well the first thing that we know is pride envy and unwillingness they didn't want to change what they had remember the jews had this oral tradition and the oral tradition was starting to trump the scriptures so to speak they placed it above god's word and nothing is placed above god's word according to the bible even his name The word is placed above the name of God. That's how important God says the word is. Matthew 27, 18 says, For he knew it was out of envy that they handed Jesus over to him. And that's Pilate referring to the Jews. They just envied what Jesus had, the knowledge that he possessed, the way he was able to win over the populace that was there. But Matthew 23, 37 says, But he would have gathered them together as a hen gathers her chicks, but they were not willing. So we know it was pride and it was manifested by envy and unwillingness. They just simply would not. Now, additionally, the Jews also believed that the Messiah would restore the nation of Israel to the same prominence it had during the reign of King David and Solomon. That's who they were looking for. They were not looking for the Messiah who comes and offers himself as a sacrifice. They did not comprehend that. They thought he simply needed to die for the nation and that will appease the Romans and it's going to be all good. Of course, we do know 
that it was prophesied that the Messiah would come from the root of Jesse and that he would be the one that would sit on the throne. But the Jews, the Messiah was to be not only from the family of David, but he would be a military, a political leader, and who would rule as king and bring everlasting peace to the nation of Israel. That's who they were looking for. They wanted to see this conquering king. It's my own personal opinion that Judas... The reason that I believe he betrayed Jesus, now th- again, this is my personal opinion, is that he believed like everyone else and even the rest of the disciples that Jesus was going to restore the kingdom that was originally given to David and make it the messianic kingdom. And I think Judas thought that if he just forces the hand of Jesus, that it will come about. And that's why he betrayed Jesus so that he would get into the, 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 not the temple, but into the hands of the leaders of the Jews and his hand would be forced. Now that's just my opinion. I could be wrong on that, but that's what the Jews were all thinking back at that time. For instance, in Acts chapter 1 verses 6 through 8, after the resurrection, they had all met together and says in verse 6, So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So see, they thought, okay, okay, this is it. He died, he rose from the dead, and now he's going to restore the nation to the monarchy. The Messiah is going to be there. That's what they all thought. And that's what the leaders of the Jews thought as well. The Messiah would relinquish or give up the control or make the Romans give up the control that they had over the Jews and just would rule so that's the mindset that they had but jesus said to the disciples when they asked if the kingdom would be restored to israel he said that it is not necessary for them to know the time that god would transform the kingdom of david into the kingdom of the messiah he simply wanted them in the meantime to be faithful witnesses now that's our job too we're supposed to simply be faithful witnesses when given the opportunity now one of the things i think i told you remember at the back uh, on the table we have the little cards for the youth Uh, one of them is uh, if you died would you go to heaven and the other one i think if god why evil and you can give that to a youth i don't care how old they are we have everything from what 14 years old to 20 years old in the group if you know someone like that give them the card and say you need to come to youth group and the older ones will be a witness to those kids who come and it will be a great time but (coughs) excuse me it's this idea of being a witness we have to have the doctrine under our belt to reach out to individuals and be saved and when i gave that instruction to the kids take that and hand them out at school or take them to the middle school and just hand them out they'll probably listen to you they may come and that would be great doing that and i i told the kids i said this is going to be nerve-wracking for you to actually stand there and be a witness for christ and give that to them especially if you go to el cap you know if they go to el cap the kids are going to know you're a christian you're passing this out and the same thing happens to us too when we want to be a witness to somebody it's like you can get all nervous on the inside and you have to pray god calm down my heart my heart's beating too fast and what am i going to say am i going to have the right words and it's just nerve-wracking but god says do it anyway be that witness anyway 
for those who are out there that need salvation. So that is our task. But Jesus did say that even as the Jews would reject him as Messiah who arrived in the name of God, the Father, they would accept another who would come in his own name. So Jesus was rejected by the Jews. And Jesus then said, I've come in the name of the Father, God the Father. But, and you've rejected me, but somebody else is going to come in their own name and you're going to accept him. Now that's what I'm going to focus on a little bit. Who is this guy that they're going to accept? And what about the situation we're in today? Is the world clamoring for somebody who is a leader? And, and those people who would be a leader in the right way, you know, they just like, we don't want him to just conservative or you know he he holds to what is true and we're in a postmodern society there is no truth and we want what we want have you guys seen what's happening in Paris there are riots in the streets because their social security system I don't know what they call it there they're raising the retirement age from age 62 to 64 and they are burning down the city of Paris as we speak there are fires in the street and they're running through from 62 to 64. By the way, this is coming our way, uh, the Social Security. I don't know if you saw this, but Janet Yellen, uh, she was talking about how in nine years there will probably be a 24% reduction in benefits in the Social Security. And they'll probably raise the retirement age to 67 or 70. We don't know what they're going to do, but they're going to have to do something because it's going bankrupt. And currently the Congress and the president both said, we're not going to touch this. Okay. This is a train that's coming full speed. And we're going to have to see what happens, but it's coming full speed. So that's going on in Paris. There, there is this rioting that's taking place over there. And they're looking for a leader. Now, Macron over there, he's probably going to be out. They're just so mad in the vernacular of today. They're ticked. They are angry over there. And they're just looking for somebody who can calm the seas, calm the waters. And that's what the world is looking for. So the world wants that, but also the Jews want this as well. Now, before I do this, I kind of have to establish a few things about eschatology. Now, if you've been here for several years, I think you've got it down. I think you've got down what's going to happen in the future according to the scriptures. Not because I'm making it up. And there's different views of eschatology. What's going to happen? For instance, in our church here, we believe that the rapture is the next prophetical event on the eschatological scale that is going to take place. The rapture is, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, John chapter 14, and Isaiah chapter 25 that there's going to be a time where we are here one moment and then the next we are up in the clouds with Jesus we meet him in the air and from there we go to heaven and we go to heaven earth time for seven years how long is it in heaven I don't know heaven is outside of time we could be there for the equivalent of a thousand years on earth I don't know but it's outside of time but for earth time It's going to be seven years. Now, that's what Scripture teaches. But that's not what all churches teach. Most churches do not teach this type of eschatology. Now, 
just to kind of divide this up so you can understand it, and I'm doing this to lay the groundwork for what I'm going to say. And for those of you who understand this, please just bear with me. Now, there are pretty much two camps in Christianity. (coughs) Excuse me. These two camps are camps that divide eschatology in two different ways. Churches that, like our church, Calvary Chapel, another one would be a Baptist church, would believe like we believe. The Assemblies of God or the Pentecostal churches would believe like we believe. And there's a few others out there that believe like, like we believe. And what do we believe? And how do we look at Scripture? When we look at Scripture, we look at Scripture in a literal fashion. If God says Jesus is coming back in the book of Revelation as authored by John the Apostle, if he says he's coming back and ruling for a thousand years, we believe Jesus is coming back and ruling for a thousand years. The way that we do, why we interpret it like that is because where Scripture has a narrative, a narrative is just simply... Like um, you have to fill out a time card at work and you say, I was at 4th and B downtown San Diego. Okay, you were at 4th and B downtown San Diego. You weren't looking at the bees and thinking about Balboa Park in San Diego. You're not going to an allegory. You're not going to something that's nebulous and hard to understand. There's no rules for interpretation with that. So when you look at the book of Revelation... Where it's a narrative, you understand it in a literal form. If it's poetry, you do not understand it in a literal form. It means something else. It points to something that is true, like the parables. The parables point to something that is true, like the parable of the sower of the seed. The seed is not seed. The soil is not soil. Weeds are not weeds. And we have to understand that there's similitudes and metaphors. And we interpret it properly using those types of devices, literary devices, whether we do it with the Bible or we do it with some other work, which is out there. That's how we look at the Bible. Literally, we interpret it literally using those devices. Secondly, we believe that Israel and the church are two different entities that God has ordained. There's Israel, which is called in the Old Testament, likened to the wife of God. And there is the church, which is the bride of Christ. Two different groups of people. Now, those who are on the other side of the interpretive scale, and I believe they're believers as well, would be churches that are Reformed or Calvinistic or Orthodox or Catholic They interpret scripture in a non-literal way. They can take a passage that's in a narrative form and they can give it a spiritual meaning. Like, for instance, if the scripture says in Revelation that there's a thousand-year reign of Christ, people in this particular camp will say, it's not a thousand years. It's a period of time. Or they'll say, we are in the millennium right now since christ left us we're in the millennium right now even though it's more than a thousand years it's been over two thousand years it's a non-literal interpretive method of looking at the scripture the second thing they do is they say israel has become the church the church is israel and so all the promises that were for israel go to the church 
The only one problem I have with that is what about the curses that go with Israel? How many times in the book of Exodus were the Jews judged because of their unfaithfulness? Doesn't that go with the church as well? But they don't talk about that. And so I have problems with that interpretive method. And there are books you can get on how to interpret the scripture. One is by Gordon Fee. He, he has a whole list of how you look at the scripture, how you look at it historically, how you look at it in context, how you look at the syntax, which is there, how you look at the interpretive processes throughout the centuries and how that you have to do all that investigative uh, research in order to come to the proper understanding of a particular passage. And, and that's okay. I think we should understand how to do that. But where we get it wrong is we don't do that. We don't interpret properly. So there are two camps in Christianity. Those who take the scriptures literally, Israel and the church are two separate entities. And those who take it non-literally or allegorically whenever necessary. And they believe the church is now the new Israel. So those are the two things. Now with that, I'm going to give you some terms. There is the millennium, which is a thousand year reign of Christ. But there are those who believe, and these are the Reformed of the Catholic or the Orthodox side, that it is amillennial. That ah, if you put the A in front of millennial, it means there is no millennium. Or it is just we're in the millennium. It's not a thousand year reign. Then there's the view of post-millennial. And post-millennial is the return of Christ after the millennium. We believe in premillennial, that Jesus is coming back before the millennium because the book of Revelation says he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. We understand that. And there's going to be a new temple, Ezekiel chapter 39 and 40 talk about the temple that is going to be rebuilt. Then there's this idea of the rapture. Now, if I didn't believe the Bible was true, I'd say, you are nuts, you are out of your minds, you are like Zulu crazy if you think that we're going to be here one minute and go to the clouds the next. The only reason I believe it is because of the prophecies that have already come to pass and there have been hundreds and they're verifiable and no other work of antiquity has any type of prophecy even close, a smidgen, even that much close to what the Bible has. And so there's this idea of the rapture. There is the post-rapture theory that we will be raptured and go up to heaven at the end of the seven-year tribulation, which is talked about in the book of Daniel chapter 9. It's going to be a time of Jacob's trouble or tribulation. I don't believe that. Then there are those who are mid-trib or pre-wrath. It's almost the same time where before the wrath of God comes down, they don't believe the wrath of God is going to come down until the middle of the tribulation. The reason I reject this particular view is because Jesus is the one who breaks open the scroll that has seals in it. And the wrath of God begins with the breaking of the first seal. The first seal brings the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which brings the Antichrist. That's why I hold to the pre-tribulational view. We're not appointed under wrath according to 1 Thessalonians, and it's going to be a time of God's wrath. Now, I just dumped the whole load eschatology of eschatology on you guys. Now, if you're familiar with this, you're going, all right, I'm tracking right with it. But let me review for a minute. There's this idea <coughs> that you interpret the scripture literally and this idea you don't interpret it literally. If you interpret it literally, there is a pre-tribulational rapture and pre-millennial return of Jesus Christ to the earth. During that time of that tribulation, 
there's going to be the Antichrist, the breaking of the first seal, right? Or the white horse, red horse, black horse, pale horse. Those guys are going to show up, and it's going to be a time of God's wrath on the earth. Now, when that takes place, they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, but they're going to accept this other guy as the Messiah. In Revelation chapter 13, it talks about him, the son of perdition. We know him as the Antichrist, although that's not his official title. Uh, he is going to be possessed by Satan himself. He's going to set himself up as God, and that is called the abomination which makes desolate. Now, why do the Jews believe that Jesus was not the Messiah, but why do they believe that somebody else is going to come, and what do they believe about him when he comes? So if you go to the Jews and you ask the Jews, you know, is the Messiah coming? Oh, yes, he's coming. And, and they're waiting for the Messiah. They're anticipating him arriving in Israel. And there are certain things they believe he is going to do. He is going to rescue the nation of Israel from where it is. Going to set up the kingdom just like the Bible prophesies that Jesus would do. Only Jesus had to come first as a suffering servant. When he comes the next time, he's going to set up his kingdom. And so these Jews, even today, I, I recently heard Ben Shapiro, if you know who he is, he talked about this. Because somebody asked him the question about the Messiah being cut off, that type of thing. And he said, you know, we can talk about this. It's been debated for centuries. But he said he holds to what Mammonides taught. Now, Mammonides, I can almost say his name. There's a nickname for him called Rambam. That's what he's called, Rambam. And Rambam, he existed in the 12th century. And he wrote about the coming of the Messiah. And this is what Ben Shapiro and the Jews hold to today. And what they said was that he will come... And he, let me digress just a little bit. This Mammonides, I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly, or Rambam. He is a Sephardic Jewish philosopher and one of the most prolific and influential Torah scholars of the Middle Ages. That's who he was. And everybody today holds to him. Now, why do they hold to him? <coughs> well... He was so prolific in his writings, and he just becomes an authority because people want him to be an authority. Now, I said he is Sephardic. Now, there's Sephardic and Ashkenazi. And you go, what in the world are those? Just like in Christianity. In Christianity, we have sex, right? S-E-C-T-S, not the other one. Sex, all right? Now, there are the Catholics. They are a sect of Christianity. There are the Orthodox, uh, Orthodox Christians. They are a sect. There are the Protestants. And each one of those have their own subsets of churches. Like in the Protestant, you have Assembly of God, Calvary Chapels. You have uh, vineyards which are out there. You have all kinds of Protestant churches. The Brethren, the Reformed churches, they're, they're in the Protestant mode. Okay? Well, the Jews have that as well. There are four sects of Judaism. There's Reformed, Orthodox, Conservative, and Reconstructionist. They, they divide them into four groups. The ones that would be probably most closely aligned with the conservative Christian view would be the Orthodox. And they're, they're the ones that have the curls on the side of their heads, and sometimes they wear a fur 
Oh, this, uh, this thing just goes around. You'll have to look them up. The Hasidic Jews, they, they wear that. Or they have a black flat top hat and they wear this black uh, robe. The men do and the women, they cover their head. And they, there's just different sects of Judaism. Well, not only are there different sects, but there's two groups of Jews. There's a group of Jews that are from North Africa and Spain and Portugal and up in that area. And that's after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. They kind of got away from the persecution. That's where they landed. Then there's the Jews, the uh, Ashkenazi, and they come from Germany and Eastern Europe uh, up in that area. They make up 80% of the Jews which are there. And the Sephardic Jews are the ones from which Maimonides came or Rambam. That's where he's from. And they believe in his teaching, but most of them are... 80% the Ashkenazis. And so there's two groups. You just have to kind of understand. I want to give you just a little bit of background of who this guy is. Now, he wrote, according to Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6. I'm going to read this to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up David, a righteous branch, a king who who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So Rambam looked at that and said, this is who the Messiah is going to be. He's going to be a political leader. He's going to set up everything. And then he wrote this. This is in chapter 11 of the Halacha, chapter 1, or excuse me, verse 1. It says, this is what he wrote in the 12th century. In the future, the Messianic king will arise and renew the Davidic dynasty, restoring it to its initial sovereignty. Okay, that's good. He will build the temple and gather the dispersed of Israel. Then in his days, the observant of all the statutes will return to their previous state, we will offer sacrifices, observe the sabbatical and jubilee year according to all their particulars as described by the Torah. Anyone who does not believe in him or does not await his coming denies not only the statements of the other prophets, but those of the Torah and Moses, our teacher. So he's going to rebuild the temple. Where, where does it say that in scripture? It says it in Daniel chapter 9. He's going to make a treaty with the nation of Israel, they are going to rebuild their temple because he's going to stand in the temple and declare himself as God. Not only that, oh, there's more. <clears throat> now this guy, when he sets his image up, it's going to be called the abomination which makes desolate. And Jesus referred to this in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 25. He says, you will know that That is the Antichrist when he does this. Now, some people, they say, no, this already happened back in about 165, 167 B.C. where Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, he came in and he set up an image uh, of Zeus in the temple and to be declared uh, that he is God and to worship him. And some people say, no, that's the fulfillment. No, Jesus referred to it something in the future in Matthew 24. This was in... 165 to 167 BC before Jesus came and he was prophesied to do this in Daniel chapter 11 verses 21 through 35 it talks about Antiochus Epiphanes there Daniel is just an incredible book and he prophesied that Antiochus Epiphanes would come there's a lot of information surrounding that if you're interested in that just go through the book of Daniel and do a Bible study on that so what about this Messiah he's going to set up the temple he's going to declare himself as God I should reiterate false messiah 
that shows up. He's going to set himself up as God, to be worshipped as God. He's also going to implement the mark of the beast. Now, I've already talked to you about the crypto. If they get the crypto, they can decide who buys or sells. But then they're also going to give you authorization by a mark on the right hand of their forehead when the Antichrist is here. Not when we're here because we go into rapture before this is implemented. Well, what else is he going to do? What did Mamamides or Rambam say about this Antichrist? Six months ago, there was in Texas five red heifers. Now, I don't know if you know anything about these red heifers. But in Numbers chapter 19, red heifers are necessary for the consecration of the priest in Israel before sacrifice takes place. You have to have a red heifer that is completely red. No red hair or no white hairs, no black hairs. It has to be red. Well, I have five of them six months ago in Texas. They shipped them over to Israel. One has been disqualified. There are four more. Why do they have the red heifers? They're anticipating sacrificing the red heifers, using the ashes to purify the water, to sanctify the priests which are there. Has to be done. Why now? You know, when we go to Israel, we're going to go to the Temple Institute. The Temple Institute has already trained priests for sacrificing in the temple. They've already made all the bowls and pitchers and pitchforks and axes, everything that is necessary for sacrifice. They have that. They have the plans ready to go. They say that they could build that thing like in six months it'd be up. No problem. And they will have the sacrifice. They're ready to go. There are the temple faithful who want to set a stone on the temple mount, the cornerstone. They want to do this. And the, the Arab Muslim population, just their hair goes on fire when they ever they hear that they may be going up to the temple mount. So let me run this back again. If the scripture, we take it literally, the Santa Christ is going to show up. He's not a nebulous figure. He's not some epic individual. He's a real guy that's going to show up, be possessed by Satan. He's going to sacrifice. And Mamamides said that he will be the one that will sacrifice the heifer. Now, since the destruction of the temple until now, there have only been nine red heifers sacrificed. This will be the 10th. And Mamamides or Ramban said, he will be the one that does that. So you set all this up. They want to build the temple. They're ready to go with the temple. You see the world kind of imploding around us. You see good being called evil and evil being called good. You see these red heifers being shipped off six months ago to Israel. They're ready to sacrifice, and it has to be a certain age according to the traditions of the rabbis who were in Israel. And I think they're just waiting for the right time. So they're going to have these ashes ready to go. And so you, you see all this being set up. And if, of course, the Mark of the Beast Cashless Society, 70, 70% of all transactions done by private individuals are now cashless. How long before we get to 100%? <clears throat> Let's see. I talked about this last week. Banks falling and they're saying everything's just fine don't worry about it and then you read some other posts get your money out now you have to and they're making runs on banks and the stocks are falling you wow how close are we anyway and is it right there is the antichrist alive right now 
I got eight minutes. We're not supposed to be looking for the Antichrist. We're supposed to be looking for Jesus Christ. But scripture tells us who he is going to be. And I think scripture gives us hints where he's coming from. I'm just going to say hints. Now, some people believe that he will come from Assyria or the area of Iraq and Babylon in that area. Some people believe he'll come from the Middle East, that he'll be a Muslim or he'll be an Arab. I reject both of those. Some people say he will be a Jew because there is one scripture in Daniel chapter 11, verse 37. It says, he will show no regard for the God of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any God, but he will exalt himself above them all. That's referring to this guy that we know as the Antichrist. I don't think he's going to be a Jew. The reason I don't think he's going to be a Jew is because he, in Daniel chapter 9, it talks about the people of the ruler who is to come. Now, if you remember Daniel's dream in Daniel chapter 2, and I know I'm giving you so much information right now, and it's kind of hard to assimilate all this stuff and put all the pieces of the puzzle together, but just bear with me. When you hear it several times, you go, okay, I'm starting to get what's going on. Daniel had a dream. Remember the head of the gold was Babylon, and then you had the chest and the arms, which are Medo and Persia. Then you had the belly and the thighs, which were Greece, and they were bronze. And then you had the legs of iron, which was Rome. And this was prophesied hundreds of years before these empires would come into being. And then you have the ten toes. The ten toes are the revived Roman Empire, which this guy, Antichrist, will be the political ruler over. And the ten toes represent ten kings. That's there. So we have these, the head, which is gold, Babylon, which is represented by a lion. You have the arms, which are media Persia, which are represented like as a bear. Then you have the belly and the legs, which are represented by Alexander the Great, and do you know what animal was used to represent him? A leopard. A leopard represented Greece. Well, with that, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 2, it says, I saw a beast, and it resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and the great authority. So I think he is either, well, he definitely is going to come out of the revived Roman Empire. And there's going to be ten kings that are over that. He's going to come out of that. He's going to depose three kings, rise to the top, and then take over everything according to the book of Daniel. When he does that, he's been given a description in the book of Revelation that he's like a leopard. If he's like a leopard, Greece was part of the Roman Empire. If he's like a leopard, there's a strong hint he could come out of Greece. Now, he may not. He could come out of Italy, you know, and he will start talking like this whenever he wants to talk to somebody. He'll use his hands, that type of thing. I don't, he could come out of France. He could come out of Germany. He could come out of all these different places. But I think it's just a hint that he could come out of Greece. I'm not alone on this. There's a few people that hold to this. And we don't know for sure. And we're not supposed to be looking for him. But if we have this information, the Jews rejected the Messiah, 
The false Messiah is going to show up. He's going to come in his own name. Jesus came in the name of the Father. He's going to, according to Maimonides, he's going to sacrifice a red heifer. He's going to allow the Jews to rebuild the temple. They are on the cusp of rebuilding the temple. They want to do it. They're ready to go with it. And I just heard a news report. I was listening to this, that somebody had a firsthand account that talked to Netanyahu. Netanyahu believes that he is the one that has got appointed to get the Jews to rebuild the temple. Now, you start putting all this stuff together. And by the way, one other thing that they've come up with, and I just heard this on a teaching too. They're revitalizing the Sanhedrin. Put all this stuff together and go, okay, we're not even going to make it home today before the rapture takes place. We just don't know how this is going to come about. And this is all based on the fact that Jesus was rejected as the Messiah. So they rejected him. The Jews are looking forward to the one who is the Messiah or the Mashiach. The world is looking forward to a savior, be he God or devil. Oh, I wanted to give you this as well. Henry Spock, he was the general secretary of NATO. This is what he said. Maybe you've heard this before. What we want is a man's sufficient stature to hold the alliances of all people and to lift us out of economic morass into which we are sinking. Send us such a man and be he God or devil, we will receive him. Well, they're going to get what he's asking for he is the devil incarnate and then we have the the world is looking for him and the temple institute and jews are looking for him as well and the temple institute is training to get the temple rebuilt the red heifers have been shipped they're just waiting the antichrist is believed by Maimonides to sacrifice the red heifer not to mention israel is a nation none of this could happen unless israel is a nation may 14th 1948 chaos around the war, the world wars rumors of wars earthquakes banks collapsing crises abound good and evil they're being flipped on their heads you have the wef the dei the esg if you go through all of that stuff you're going wow we are living in such a time as this that we might experience the rapture now will it happen this next week year month i don't know it could be 10 years all i know is these are the precursors and at no other time in history have you seen this and how quickly is it transpiring faster than we can keep track of just think what the world was like 20 years ago has it changed yeah it has changed my prayer for you my hope is that you will live even more with the expectation that god's plan is unfolding right before our eyes and that we will be going home soon god's return is imminent it is right around the corner and we should live like that and tell others what we have learned let's pray father we thank you for your word we thank you that you have told us that jesus told us that another individual is coming who will be possessed by satan himself and he will be accepted by the jews and by the world help us to warn everybody with godly wisdom help us not to speak out of the flesh help us to be led and guided by your spirit but lord help us also to retain this knowledge and do our own bible studies and father as we look at your word and we examine it there may we always believe the truth that is there and be able to recognize it and not distort it as the world and even some churches are doing We ask for your blessing on all these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. And his church said, Amen. Amen. Please stand.